In January 1991, the local businessman Jack Walker decided that he wanted to spend his money on his local football team. And in just a couple of years, Blackburn Rovers went from being a team with a great history, but one that was quite happily ensconced in the second tier, to a team that had really disrupted the top of the Premier League, even in 1994-95, breaking the transfer record and winning the Premier League title. Uh, so we've got a full roster here today to talk about one of the, the most important sides of the early 1990s. Maz, let's come to you because obviously Blackburn came up a few times last week and you expressed some pretty big uh, opinions on them. You really didn't like them. Uh, I remember as well at the time there being a bit of a counter narrative to that. There was a sense of particularly by 94, 95 and anybody but Man United narrative that Blackburn were the beneficiaries of. And I met fans miles and miles away from Blackburn who are unfortunately for them Blackburn fans to this day um so yeah just fill us in what were your thoughts on Blackburn at the time why even this much later did it cause that kind of vitriol when we were talking about another team last week as a jumping off point I just find them to be a bunch of you know it's you know it's not really about them you know the narrative of them buying a title is not my problem with them I just find them a bunch of highly unlikable footballers. I just do not like a lot of those players. Shearer, Sutton, horrible. David Bay, horrible. You know, they're just a bunch of players that I just cannot like. I mean, Tim Bloody Sherwin. Um, I just, I don't like them as 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 players. I don't like them. And that's it. Yeah. So while yes, by that point. Uh, we were definitely into that period of anyone but United. But yeah, they they weren't a team that they weren't players that I liked. They didn't play a style of football that I liked. It, it, it wasn't fun to me, you know. I uh, I'd say that now as as uh, it'd be Liverpool all day long for me at that point. If it wasn't Arsenal, a team that I actually liked watching and enjoyed the players <laughs> if they doubled United I'd have been a bit happier about it but no not this Blackburn team I just don't like any of these players to this day yeah, I was kind of the opposite I, I I did like this Blackburn team a lot actually I supporting a team that was basically nowhere near getting anywhere near United at the, that point in time um, yeah, yeah it was, I, I was kind of really rooting for somebody to take United on and obviously wouldn't have wanted it to be Arsenal wasn't bothered about Liverpool and Blackburn were kind of interesting because they had that history that you mentioned from being one of the original clubs of the you know late 19th century and then kind of getting left behind being this kind of you know curious you know kind of original northern power center of the game that got left behind but then suddenly a local businessman puts their hands in their pocket you know and actually it's a second coming for Kenny Dalglish as well after he left Liverpool in that sort of very dramatic fashion where he just essentially quit on the bench, you know, one day in, you know, January 91 um, for reasons that nobody could quite work out at the time, but really were to do with the trauma of Hillsborough. But he comes in and takes on this Blackburn side, brings them up. Uh, they make waves from the minute of the first Premier League season um, and they get close to United than anybody else sort of in that double winning season and then eventually here they do get to the title and of course like I guess younger 
Uh, younger listeners always kind of think of Shearer as being a Newcastle player, but I think for me, I always think of him as Blackburn first um, because this was when he was at his absolute peak and, you know, was a absolute monster footballer um, in his prime. And uh, the team around him was basically perfectly constructed to get the best out of him. And it is a very British team. You know, it's very 4-4-2, two wingers that basically just cross and don't do anything else, two strikers that... Uh, a very direct two central midfields that get up and down a back four that doesn't let in many goals led by a grizzled Scottish centre-half the second best goalkeeper in the league who can't get in the England team but you know nevertheless was always incredibly reliable so yeah I was always I was always fond of this side and I think if if they're not remembered Maybe the way they should be, it's it's probably a consequence of what happens and how they actually win the league. But we can come to that. Yes. This was a really important season in terms of like my footballing fandom, I suppose. As I was, I was eight, I suppose, learning about football. I knew Manchester United were a big team and kind of didn't want them to, to keep winning everything. Because even at that age, you realise that's a bit boring. And then in January 1995, they by Andy Cole from Newcastle, who I'd kind of picked upon as my as, as my team. And so I was probably a little bit hostile to Manchester United at this point. So the idea that someone could come and come and usurp them in the way that Blackburn did um, at the time was quite exciting to me. And I, I've got very vivid memories, particularly of the last day of that season watching those two games kind of just flicking between Sky Sports 1 and Sky Sports 2 just sort of seeing seeing all unfold obviously I, I didn't know much about the story didn't know much about the sort of the tactical approach to uh, the team and and obviously the the, the personnel that, that they brought in and that, that's kind of an extra layer for me but for me it's more about the sort of that that sort of first memory of a of a league campaign and, and how it turned out and it still stands up as you know one of the most intriguing exciting seasons that the, the Premier League's ever produced. Mental last day isn't it? Oh it's a mental second half to the season really but yeah that I, I've still got it burned into my brain Andy Cole wearing number 17 in that black United kit just it's not even being able to finish from about two yards out. Didn't the West Ham keeper have an absolutely ridiculous game though? Like, I mean, it's always gone, it's always kind of gone down as being, you know, Andy Cole throwing the league for United. But, uh, you know, I, think I can't the, remember who was in golf for West Ham. It but was he had Ludo, some game. Ludo McCloskey. Yeah. Of course it was. Yeah. I was thinking Les Seeley for some reason, but <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> was Seeley at Villa by then? Might well have been, yeah. Seeley uh, no, was playing for West Ham. Yeah, this is the season Arsenal signed Burkamp, isn't it? This is taking a turn, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, we're uh, all right. Uh, uh, yeah, so, so I remember it in, in, in our first game, in, in one of Burkamp's first games before he got his first goal, Les Seeley had to come on for West Ham up front uh, because, <laughs> because he was the only sub left and someone got injured. And, the West Ham fans were singing, we all agree, Seeley is better than Burkamp. <laughs> that was a fun one, to the point where you sat there thinking, they might actually be right here, hold on. <laughs> but it's, it's that early in the Burkamp's tenure that you, you weren't quite sure. So he, he, I'm, he, I'm guessing he was at West Ham. 
he was, but it looks like he'd not long been at Man United. So it all ties back around. Yeah, crazy last day. It's just um, the one thing that I kind of do remember is that, as you said a while ago, there Shearer thinking was a Blackburn player. Was it three, four years in a row he scored thirty plus goals a season for Blackburn? No, I know there were more games. Yeah. So, so t- yeah, he still has two of the the highest goal scoring seasons. You know, and so when obviously you know Harland has been scoring a lot of, of, of goals, of course, and people been wondering like, you know, is somebody finally going to go past that? that mark of Andy Coles and, and Alan Shearer's like, yes, there were, there were more games because there were sort of, uh, there were 22 teams, weren't there, to begin with the Premier League. But, 42, um, games, season. 42 games, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, nevertheless, like, he was in ridiculous, ridiculous form. I mean, 34 league goals um, in this title-winning season and I think 30-plus the year before as well. Yeah, 31 the year before. So it was pretty uh, pretty incredible numbers that Shearer was putting up. And it, it's worth remembering me talk about Shearer in a Blackburn shirt that spending three and a half million pounds on him was thought to be a, a an absurd risk um, mm. at the time. Because although, you know, he scored a hat-trick in his Southampton debut, you know, like, he, he wasn't seen as being, like, particularly prolific at Southampton. And... Um, you know, it, when when the transfer happened, I remember everybody thinking that's a lot of money for a guy that that kind of doesn't even play for England. Um, and then he scores a hat trick, I think, in his first game for Blackburn, and he just never stops scoring. Yeah, there's this talk of the one thing that he doesn't necessarily do well in that first season, which is ninety two, ninety three. They sign him in, and the talk is that he does everything well except finish, particularly, and he obviously you know, the two, three years after that, he goes on to prove that he was the complete striker in a way that I don't think he ever what really was again after maybe 97, 98. Yeah, that he gets, that's all he could do by that point. All he could do was finish. He gets, yeah, he gets sort of, I mean, that's, that, I think people um, that only saw him at Newcastle, they kind of missed out on pre-knee injury Shearer was, 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 you know, something completely different. Like he, uh, he just scored from absolutely everywhere. But also was involved in the play, you know, passing, moving, interchanging, you know. I always think of Alan Shearer at that time as basically being like a sort of souped up Mark Hughes with loads of pace. Which is a pretty scary thing when you think about it. He's a wonderful athlete, wasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, there was just there, there was just that complete, like, ruthlessness to him as well. He just absolutely obliterated defences at that time yeah brilliant player um, and I guess I, later on he'd be the guy that just stood in the middle and poked the goal in but he was very different early on I think what makes them particularly difficult to play against this year is that obviously Shearer is that player he is, he's very physical but he's also got the, the wherewithal to drop into into the, the, that attacking midfield role and when he's got a Sutton to to get on the end of things that it makes them a very difficult proposition to play against because they're both they're both good in the air they've both got an eye for goal Blackburn are they're always going down the flanks and you know how they're going to play and if the, the plan b is for Shearer to drop in so it becomes difficult to play against um they've also got so much energy in the mid in the midfield I th- yeah I think I think the SAS thing is is interesting isn't it because it's mm. really the last high profile 
partnership, actual two out and out strikers playing together, ex- I guess, except for York and Cole. But you don't see this many more times in the Premier League, like two 20 plus goal strikers like playing together for a team in the Premier League. Because even now, Bergkamp has signed, Zola is about to sign, Decanio is coming soon. Sheringham's already starting to become the Sheringham you'll see in Euro 96. So it's starting to become the land of the number 10. And this is two proper number nines playing up front together. So, you know, it's a curiosity, I think, even at the time when you look at what the other, you know, what the other good teams in the Premier League were doing at that point. As Matt says, like Bergkamp comes on board this season you know, Canstar's been doing his thing, you know, since he signs with United, um, uh, you know, the, the, that first Premier League season. So, yeah, Bratburn already is starting to look a bit like a throwback, even as they're winning the league, because, you know, you could have stuck Stuart Ripley and Jason Wilcox in 1955 and they'd have fit right in. You know, they're literally chalk, chalk on the boots, wingers mm. that cross the ball on their strong foot. There's a great story in in the mixer. I know I know Joe's read this as well. And um, Kenny Dalgleish was sort of saying to I think it's Stuart Ripley, like so so you know let's say you can't get to the byline, like what are you going to do? And Ripley just kind of looks blankly at him because <laughs> he hasn't ever thought that actually he would do something else. And and it, it's completely the inverse of what you have now, where you've got you know your Salas and and Manes, you know these kind of inside forwards that that their first thought is they're going to attack the goal whereas you know these are proper outside right outside left um and their role is to cross the ball and that's what they did and they did it very very well but you know limited players in their own way but but they kind of were really important to how that Blackburn team played yeah that's that's the key there you know there's a system that Blackburn played that they knew exactly what they were doing there's no messing about, tinkering about, or oh, let's see, uh, should, we, should we swap <laughs> Wilcox and Shipley over and see what they're like cutting in? No, none of that bollocks, you know, but it, it weren't the game then, was it? You know, and it was evolving, as you say, but, you know, it's it, it's the end of that era. But, you know, when you've got players that, that know the system and can make it work. I think that more to the point, that they, they had players who who knew the system and played it perfectly, and they weren't trying to shoehorn in players who didn't suit that system they only had players who, who played that system and that's why it worked so well it's interesting and, and th- th- that it only lasts a season as well because the, the following season they've got more or less the same side different manager but the people have gotten wise to it the, the, the game's moved on it's, it's um, funny as well that, that i'm remembering that next blackburn season because i remember shoot magazine at the time had run this brilliant long-running meme which was it's all gone horribly Ray Harford, <laughs> which so anything that ever went wrong, it's gone horribly Ray Harford, and that that was like such a sort of like uh, I don't know such a brilliant childhood memory of like you know getting home from Tesco on a Thursday after the big shop with your shoot magazine and it's got Ray Harford banter all over it. What I think is uh, important to remember about them as a strike partnership, uh, first is just how big a deal the transfer of them both were. Obviously, the, the Shearer one we've touched on, the Sutton one was a huge drama and you know everybody was in for Chris Sutton in 1995. He just had that great season playing in the 
the Norwich team that we looked at a season or so ago. And now there was several suitors for his hand and uh, obviously Blackburn won it. And it was seen as the final piece in the puzzle that for a Blackburn team that had uh, done quite well and had been moving up. And I think they were runners up in 93, 94 anyway. And that's yeah, where she were injured for a long stretch. So that was a big part of it. And the other thing is that, yes, they were two out and out strikers, but they were both quite, you know, really quite intelligent players as well. So Shearer would put himself about quite a lot, especially in the seasons where he didn't have bad injuries. And Sutton was you know, underappreciated as a footballing intellect. And that's something that you see certainly in the back end of his career. And he managed to extend that into the, the 2000s just by playing clever. And I think the two worked quite well together, even though they didn't necessarily like each other all that much. They were well-rounded, weren't they? I mean, you know, despite the fact they were number nines, they weren't just put your toe in and finish, were they? They were both well-rounded, complete strikers and both at the absolute peak of their game, is what I'd argue, um, in this season. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, like, Shearer always said he preferred playing Mike Newell. Because what Mike Newell was, was he was that sort of, I guess, what what Heskey was to Michael Owen or something like that sort of, somebody that basically made the space, or what Benzema was for Ronaldo, in some ways, right? Uh, Somebody that basically made clever runs, opened up space for the strike partner, you know, held the ball up and so on. Shearer loved playing Mike Newell. And so he was a bit hostile towards Sutton when he joined. The thing I forget is that Sutton was only 21 in this season. Like, you kind of think that, because he looks quite old, even when he's breaking through at Norwich, you kind of forget that he's only 21 when he goes to Blackburn. And he'd been a centre-half as well, so you can imagine the kind of the physical kind of prepossessing that went along with that kind of rugged look. Uh, yeah, you, I would have guessed 21 if you'd asked me. I don't, I don't think the age at the time is... It, that, that doesn't strike you as all that weird, though, because Shearer was very young when he broke through, and obviously we're, we're still we're, we're talking about a time when Robbie Fowler was pulling up trees at the age of 18. Oh, it's not, it's not uh, that it was surprising that he was good at 21. It's more the fact that he just didn't look like he was 21. 21. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> he, he looked... Uh, Looked like he'd been playing since the late 70s. <laughs> yeah, so um, anyway, that is kind of like the final piece of the puzzle. And it is a long story, if you like, of, oh, it's Blackburn spending again. It goes all the way back to the moment that Jack Walker takes over. And uh, the, a few months later, he gets Kenny Dalglish. You know, why would Kenny Dalglish go there? Oh, it must be for the money. This narrative kicks in. But... You know, as you say, it's um, th- this season that we're looking at, Man United spend more on Andy Cole than any player that Blackburn bought in that whole run. Uh, that Blackburn never paid seven million in, up to the point where they won the league. So why do we talk about Blackburn having bought the league? Don't all teams buy the league at some level? I mean, you could argue that they, they have, out of all the teams who have won the Premier League, they have least bought the league when you consider the sums of money that were involved in, in other successes. Um, I think it's... Yeah. Perhaps, with the, perhaps the exception of Leicester. It's the fact that they came from relative obscurity to win the league relatively quickly. And that hasn't happened very often, that a team can basically come up... For, I mean, Forrest did it in the late 70s, didn't they? But that was a different a different type of league. But, but for a team to come up, basically be in the top top six their first two years in the newly formed Premier League win it in their third year it just I guess it was just the time the time span of them spending the money to get out of the the second tier 
then spanning the money to become a top five team and then finally winning the title. It all happened very close together. And essentially, as Joe said earlier on, it's a very compressed timeline because essentially when Dalglish leaves, you, you basically have a complete decline. Um, and as we talked about last week, you know, Sutton ends up being one of those last Blackburn players to go getting picked off by Chelsea after he stays on for a couple of years. But, you know, Shearer goes to Newcastle to try and repeat the trick uh, and be the last piece in the jigsaw for, for Keegan. And of course, that doesn't doesn't quite work out. He does definitely become a, a hometown hero, but uh, doesn't get to repeat the trick of winning the title. But I think that's why that narrative around buying the league exists, because it did happen pretty quickly and it was with somebody's personal fortune as opposed to you know a corporation or something you know I think I think a lot of it is less about how much was spent on on these players and more about where these players were three years prior and with the exception of maybe one or two I think three years prior very few of them were at, were at Blackburn I th- the, you know, the thing is maybe. this is we're what we're just the third season of the Premier League right and there are clubs who, it's fairly well documented, were fairly instrumental in setting up the Premier League and were and saw its formation as being pivotal to it being the catalyst to changing their fortunes. And then all of a sudden, Blackburn, who, when the Premier League was being thought up, were languishing down in Division Two, have come from nowhere and taken their taken their sweets, so to speak. Um, so there's a narrative from those clubs who, who basically think that Blackburn have uh, have taken what what should have been theirs. I don't know. Yeah, it's, very, it's, it's very similar to Chelsea last week, isn't it? Like absolutely. Uh, you know, when the Harding money started with Chelsea, um, they were Aravistes, and people did look down the noses at them and say, "Oh, but Chelsea, they're one of the crap London clubs. What are they doing up here?" I know that's how me and Maz felt as, you know, as Arsenal and Spurs fans. Like, it was kind of like, Chelsea? Like, how dare it's they just, be the top London club? It's, going it's a story as old as time. It's like an Orient. <laughs> it's, it's a story as old as time. And like the, the whole, the, the same thing sort of happened, obviously, when Chelsea came into more money, um, when the Bramwich came in and when City took the, like, when Sheikh Al-Mansour came in and, you know, Newcastle are going through it right now and, Money does sort of strange things to, to people's opinions, doesn't it? But ultimately, Blackburn deserved to win that title. Um, they they recruited well. If they'd spent ten million quid on three apps, you know, absolute idiots, then <laughs> you could have accused them of trying to throw money at a situation. But the fact is, they did recruit the right players. It's not like they went and bought you know Cantona and Giggs and Robbie Fowler and places like that. They were players who were playing for relatively unfashionable clubs Shearer and Flowers certainly and they made it work and they they played a system that worked, worked perfectly and, and no one that year could live with it and the year before they were very good as well and the year before that they were very good as well I mean it is a, it is a three-year cycle and they you know they do very well in the Premier League probably more better than people thought they would the first year round you know they that United double winning team as we've talked about is maybe one of the best teams relatively ever to compete in the Premier League. They just blew, they that team blew people away. But Blackburn were the closest to them that season. They win it this time, and then of course it goes uh, all goes a bit wrong for them. But um, I, I yeah, but they were 
they were a good team. And Kenny Dalglish is a much better manager, I think, than he's remembered as being. Because, of course, like, you know, people kind of now just kind of see him as, oh, you know, ex-pro, you know, lucked into having the best team in the league in Liverpool, like, after Paisley and Fagan have done all the hard work and, you know, he retires as a player and gets to be Liverpool manager and they're still really good. They get John Barnes, who's the best player in the league. He goes to Blackburn, he drags them up from the first division, they win the league. I think that proves that he knew what he was doing. And it wasn't just that at Liverpool when he won those titles, he had Beardsley and Barnes and McMahon and everybody else. So I do think like Dalglish is due much more respect than he gets. And I, I understand it. Like, you know, his Newcastle's tenure didn't end up ending very well. And of course he ends up going back to Liverpool bizarrely, you know, in that kind of strange period when Liverpool were floundering. But nevertheless, like I, I do think he's he's due a bit more respect as a manager. To a large degree, you're right about you kind of arriving and thing and uh, the sense of people get it's all right for the clubs that are expected to be flashing the cash. But if you're not expected to be doing it, then people get uh, kind of affronted by that. The, the whole thing does look very quaint, compared, both politically and financially compared with what we're used to in the 21st century. But uh, back then, that wasn't the very much the narrative around around it all. I think the other aspect to remember is that Jack Walker was this big character, uh, bigger probably than any of the players, uh, certainly in the first few years. So uh, maybe a lot of it was kind of personal as well. It's that kind of response to a larger than life figure who didn't really fit the image of what a top flight football chairman was meant to be. You think about the guys who were stitching up the Premier League for the lack of a better term, they were chairman and they were football businessmen rather than the steel magnate who ploughed his money into the club. So uh, a lot of it does come back to to personalities in that respect too, I think. It's like Dave Whelan when he takes yeah, Wigan, you know, exactly. it's, it's a similar thing. It's basically just a local guy. Like the Sun used to have that weird striker cartoon strip. And in that there was this sort of caricature pie factory owner or something that owned the team <laughs> and then like around the time of the Abramovich takeover they changed it so that like some Russian businesswoman bought them and but he stayed on as a director and they had this sort of like comically dissonant relationship between the pie man and the uh, and the Russian owner um anyway but it's it's very I'm much sure like a, a storyline of... on dream team it's very much like a trope, isn't it? Like this idea of the bluff northern owner. You kind of see it like in various forms, don't you, in lots of different media. But yeah, Jack Walker was like that. John Hall was like that at Newcastle as well, wasn't he? That's been, I was just at, at say, the same time. There's a really interesting contrast with, and I, I, we're obviously doing a bit of a double header, I suppose, with this one and next week's episode. Um, but yeah, there, there is an interesting contrast with Newcastle and, you know, if, if there was ever a team who did attempt to buy the league around that time, it was Newcastle. And the fact that, you know, we, we, we put together a side that was playing exciting football with you know, a, a lot of players who were, you know, gaining more recognition and it, it almost worked. It almost worked. And it was almost it, it, if it had worked, it might have been the way that other clubs tried to do it. Obviously, everything in football changed very quickly quite soon after that. But I, I guess those, those two were the last two attempts by, I suppose, local businessmen just just ploughing everything into a club just to see what what happened, what would happen, and it it, it doesn't really happen at this level anymore. 
I guess in terms of the narrative as well, because United at this point are about to rebuild around the class of 92, the narrative becomes, you know, look at United, they've done all this with their youth system. Mm. And Cantona, who they bought for a million quid, and Smichael, who they bought for a million quid. Uh, and so the, the narrative becomes that United are kind of sensible and prudent when of course in the 80s they were the basket case weren't they like just yeah. buying anyone that anyone they could think of you know it's like it's a bit like Liverpool like Liverpool thought to be like a model of smart business nowadays but it wasn't <laughs> so long ago when they were buying all sorts of absolute nonsense and transfer windows so these things always kind of kind of come in in stages and in in fads don't they and um uh, but yeah, I think the fact that United were building around a young core of homegrown players meant that Blackburn, Newcastle, Chelsea, they looked like teams that were more consciously using the transfer market, whereas United were thought to be, and I'm not sure how true this really is, but they were thought to be just making the odd strategic addition because they were the biggest club in the country and they could. But also, I think it's a fun though in that sense because like that for that first team, the 92, 93, 93, 94 team, they weren't based around that youth group and they were an expensively assembled team for the side. You know, yeah. Schmeichel was only a million quid, but that only looked cheap in hindsight. That was a lot of money for a goalkeeper. Bruce and Pallister were both really expensive centre backs for the time. Uh but yeah, it's, it's something that people put together after the fact, I think, almost as a stick to beat all those other clubs that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's also very easy to forget that United were one of those clubs who were in for Shearer at the time that yes. one Blackburn signed him and when Newcastle signed him. So yeah. they they were not above trying to buy the league. No, and, yeah, they they tried to buy David Hurst. They tried to buy all sorts of they people. They tried to buy Les Ferdinand in January and he, he chose not to go and they ended yeah. up buying And they ended up with, I mean, they spent nearly two million quid on Dion Dublin, didn't they? And he broke his leg. So, you know, there were... It, yeah, sort of Mark Hughes was always having to fend off these younger players that United were trying to replace him with. And he he, uh, he kept them off for quite a long time, didn't he? So we've talked about all the big names, really. Uh, so just to kind of broaden it out a bit, are there any unsung heroes? Is there anybody that you kind of have the old uh, cult hero status with you about this team? Anyone that jumps out that we haven't mentioned yet? Colin Hendry. Colin Hendry was the absolute heart of this team. And there's a game I'll never forget, actually, like towards the end of that season. And I just remember watching on Match the Day as Colin Hendry headed clearances off the line into forests of boots time and time again. And it's one of the greatest displays of centre-back play I think I've ever seen. And he just meant it. Like every everything he threw himself at, every block he made, it was truly incredible and um and he was yeah he was the heartbeat of that team yeah, and a really player. really good player absolute worry and he he would be my exception he'd be the likable person for me in this team really really good player strong really good center half you know typical old school like you say put your head in anywhere put anything on the ball and, and then henning berg was like incredibly cultured as you know like so so you had hendry who take no prisoners old school centre half then Hennig Berg was just like properly classy player you know he was a real Rolls Royce centre half and of course he goes to United later on and does and does very well there I think I'd nominate uh, 
I, I really like Sutton more for his Norwich spell. I mean, me and Neil have both spoken about having a soft spot for Norwich, and that, that extended to Sutton for, for a long time. Uh, but you can't really name him because I recognise why other people find him unlikable, put it that way. Um, I'll nominate then two players that came through the, the youth team, just to kind of counteract that bounce. We don't think of them as a as a club that gave young players to, to football, but Jason Wilcox and David May uh, both go to play either for England or win titles uh, with Blackburn and, and other sides. And uh, I think they're both excellent footballers, so, so I'd nominate both of those. You can also look at Ripley, who isn't one of theirs, but obviously comes up through Middlesbrough and is a great, great winger for them. Uh, and the last one, an unlikable player, but I think it's a really important player that we haven't mentioned yet, is Mark Atkins. He played a lot when David Batty was injured, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah, Batty was injured this whole season pretty much, he wasn't was, he? I mean... Yeah, like, he, he, was the, he was brought in because he'd won the league at Leeds. So his experience was sort of seen as being sort of crucial to it, but he actually didn't play a huge amount this this season. You still get a lot of Paul Warhurst in this season, which is which is. I mean, again, we've talked about Paul Warhurst before we did Oldham, but what well, I mean, I mean, basically the uh, the Ronald De Boer of English football. Yeah. <laughs> like played did everywhere. that run for, for Wednesday when he went on that ridiculous st- scoring spree, didn't we? Yeah, like he he was. He just did play any way he wanted, but mostly as a box-to-box midfielder for Blackburn. Um, and, you know, him and Sherwood getting up and down was was really, was really really important for them. And Sherwood, by the way, as much as he's become a meme and the guy in the Chilet and, and all the rest of it, he was a really good player, a really good player. Just kind of has the knack of scoring important goals got his foot in, could pick a pass. You know, there was a reason why why Blackburn picked him up and why he was really important to that title-winning side. You know, I think he's ever-present that season. Um, and we've not mentioned Lasso, which we probably should. I mean, again, talk about unlikable players. I think there are probably very few players as unlikable as Graham Lasso, but, but so ahead of his time. In English football, that kind of proper wing-back, he, he was obviously playing a 4-4-2, but for England would play a really crucial role for Glenn Hodder in a, you know, in a sort of three, If Graham three, five, was playing today, he'd be that first name on the team sheet every single time for England. Yeah, I mean, Gareth Southgate would never have been on that team, was he? It's like, yeah. <laughs> a bit, you know, sort of you can draw a direct line from Graham Lasso to Ben Chilwell, I think, you know, it's, it's, he was a massive pioneer of that kind of fullback play. And you'd often sort of drift in and sort of play as an auxiliary midfielder. Mm. Um, I'm really, I don't know, he was a very good dead ball player as well. Did he did he score a free kick in the Tournoi or, or or the Umbro tournament? I think he had an absolute so it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. It was the fact that you know the fact that even as as beloved as Stuart Pearce was, a lot of people were very angry that Pearce was going to start Euro '96 ahead of Lasso. I remember that really clearly. Like in my sort of group of friends you know played foot with at the park and everything we had intense arguments about whether it should be Pierce or Lasso that would go on for hours it's funny because Lasso feels like the Venables player it, he does doesn't he but I think it was I guess I mean I think I've heard Venables say that Adams Experience, and Pierce yeah. he They're felt leaders. the redemption factor was so big for them both for different uh-huh. reasons that, that it yeah. would carry the team he was right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
so I've got I, I guess it's what you're going team. for as well. If you want a solid a solid foundation, you know, Pierce was still probably the better the better choice at that point. Whereas if you wanted to be bombing forward, then it, so obviously had a bit more about him, particularly that, particularly in '96. But yeah, I've got a question about this Blackburn team. Okay. So we we sort of briefly uh, touched on it, but haven't really sort of discussed it in any great detail in terms of a sliding doors moment that season. If Cantona doesn't lose his head in February, are Blackburn anywhere near this title? Yeah, that's they're near it. Do they win it? I think is a different question. But I think United probably run out by like six points, to be honest. That United team were so good. Having said that, they were as bad in that year as I ever remember them being. It did take Cole a long time to gel with the rest of them. And they it was a bit awkward watching United that season. They didn't it was a bit transitional, wasn't it? You know, because start you know, the sort of the double winning team, it was starting to get its makeover, it's Ferguson moving people on and and trying different things. So it's funny because I feel like this Blackburn team got the yips at the end and that's why they kind of get remembered as kind of limping to the title because, of course, they have this very dramatic last day where they lose their last game, but United, you know, don't go in for the kill. But it's it'd be interesting to see if actually if United were pushing them would they have got the yips? Because it's almost, I must feel like, because they were front runners, that's why they lose those games to to City, West Ham and Newcastle, like, because they weren't prepared to be the front runner, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I wonder if United still being in it would actually have helped them in some ways. So for an unfancy team getting over the line is actually the hardest bit. Absolutely. And, and, so, it, and, and so it proved, you know. Um, interesting that Liverpool, that had absolutely nothing to play for, like, uh, decided to uh, to play like that on the last day of the season. But I guess that was the um, that was when the Spice Boys started getting going, and uh, you can check out. Turn it around. Weren't Blackburn one up, and, and Liverpool turned it round. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah, I remember. I remember a red nap free didn't kick, it? didn't they? Yeah, red nap free kick or something like that. It is worth just adding on the the whole thing is that. United actually, there's only six games from the Cantonese that, that they drop points, so it's it's not like they could have run away with it unless they'd won them all. And most of these are draws, so I suppose they could have, if they turned four draws into wins, they would have won it by about six points, which is what I said a moment ago. But it's not like there's a whole long run that they go on that they you can sort of write out and, and correct for. It's just the odd games here and there. Uh, if they had done what Cantona did in 95, 96, where you just get that ridiculous run of one nils that he, you know, one nil Cantona, uh, we spoke about that in the past, haven't we? Then, um, then yeah, maybe that would have been uh, been different. But I don't see them being suddenly miles off the pace. I think they always would have been in the mix. Yeah, haven't been second the year before. Like, you know, they were definitely going into the season. It felt like it did feel like Blackburn or United. You know, I mean, obviously Forest are the surprise third place team that season, having, having come up. But yeah, if you look at I me, mean, like, it's a weird top five, really, isn't it? Like Blackburn, United, Forest, Liverpool, Leeds, like no Arsenal. Right, it, this, it, this was Arsenal's. Um, this is Rio the Cup. Uh, <laughs> prime, prime. Oh yeah, this is yeah, this is Rio <laughs> season. So yeah, we've we've just had those two years where 
we're all focused on the cup and we're a non-factor at this point in, in the league. I mean, you, you talk about the sort of cup competitions. Blackburn basically had no cup commitments after about October, did they? Yeah, they went out early in both. I think. They went out very early in, in everything. And I don't, so I don't remember them ever doing well in the cups, really. Actually, under under Dalglish. Whereas United sort of famously went all the way to to Wembley to face Everton and topped it up, um, and came away from the season with nothing. Always something I can, uh, you know, I can put up with quite well. <laughs> So another question, I guess we can maybe use this to, to wrap things up on. Um, a few years later, obviously, there's the disaster when Doug Lee steps upstairs to become director of football. They're placing Ray Harford. They lose a multitude of places like overnight. They go 7th, then the 13th. And then a couple of years later, you have this season where Roy Hodgson comes in. He's been manager at Inter and done quite well there. They really sad to see him leave Inter. He comes in at Blackburn and they do quite well. They get back into Europe and it's a team with... Uh, Jason Wilcox, Chris Sutton, Kevin Gallagher, Stuart Ripley, Colin Hendry, Tim Sherwood, Tim Flowers. Do we think of the 97-98 season where Hodgson takes them into Europe as like the last good kind of hurrah of the Jack Walker Blackburn? Or is it already over by then? Is it all about SAS, Shearer and Sutton, 94-95, and that taking the, the title thing to Man United? Was it already long over by the time they've got the likes of Damian Duff playing for them? I don't think anyone's thinking of Blackburn in the same terms as they are, say, Wenger's Arsenal or Ferguson's United at that point. I feel like they're they're way off the pace at that point. So yeah, sick by that Hudson. by that measurement, it's it's not really comparable. Like they're 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 a good team and they you know they they obviously did very well that year. But I don't I don't think anyone's there's not the same feeling around it. I think what you've got to look at, like, you know, you've got Arsenal who have stepped in now as, look at those early United Premier League title wins. They don't really have a consistent challenger. And it would be Arsenal, that team, that first team that comes along and challenges them for quite a few seasons on the trot. But also off the back of Blackburn, you've got Newcastle giving it a shot. You've then got, you know, Liverpool starting with the Spice Boys starting to get a good buzz about them. And I think Blackburn very quickly become afterthoughts after a, after a season. Yeah, it's pretty much it goes, it goes oh. Villa, Blackburn, Newcastle, and then as you say, Maz, Arsenal and United are basically the best two teams in the league then for five years before Chelsea you know, come along. I think as soon as Shearer leaves Blackburn, it's... That then they're not going to reach the same heights. He's, he's yeah. Sort of he's he's the X factor in that team. He's the one who makes the difference. Um, if you take Shearer out of that team, they don't they don't get close. I don't think. I don't. But it's also symbolic, is. isn't it? Yeah. Like because Newcastle spend fifteen million to take him home. Well, Blackburn make no effort to keep him because they know there isn't any point. But they also don't replace him. And the magic money tree <laughs> basically stops at this point, doesn't it? Like they stop spending money after that first title. They don't really spend again. And although they keep some of the good players for a while, you know, once Sutton goes in, you know, that, that Chelsea season we talked about last week, um, you know, that's aside from the Sooness, very painful Sooness League Cup win um, against uh, against Spurs in, 2001 I want to say um, aside from that 
like they uh, they never really threaten winning a trophy again. I think they almost it's almost like they're happy that they've done it once and that's it. Like they they're, they're one and done, and they they see the following season that New, Newcastle have immediately surpassed them. And at the same time, there's money going into Chelsea. Arsenal are spending money. Liverpool are spending money. They can't keep up with it. And they know they can't keep up with it, even though they've won the league and they've got 15 million quid from selling Alan Shearer. They know it's not really sustainable. So maybe they're just kind of going, we'll just, we'll, we'll take this one and that'll be yeah. us. Well, they do the continuity thing, don't they? Like they, uh, they have Harford and they basically like, well, this group of players are proven. This was Kenny's number two. He's now director of football. It'll be fine. But, you know, in football, when you stand still, people will will kind of surpass very, you. Very quickly, what, yeah. it? what would have happened if they hadn't won the league that year? Would, would they have kept going? Would Walker have thrown another you know, six million quid at another striker? Or um, I mean, they, they were linked with Zidane, weren't they? And... Uh, it is worth pointing out that this year it doesn't go for another year after the title win. No, it, 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 it's the, that's that's a fair point. I, th- I think the issue they have the following season is that, uh, the, as I say, that the game's moved on. People have sort of figured out what Blackburn are about, and then yeah. and again, New, New, Newcastle are are the sort of the the, the force that they are, and um, Blackburn struggle to cope with the expectation on them, but. Um, and then after that, obviously Shearer's gone, and everyone's a little bit older as well. Like, Hen- Hen- how, how long does Hendry pay for after this? He plays alarmingly late when you figure that he'd actually already had a spell at Blackburn before they re-signed him in the early 90s. I think he might still be there around the time of the millennium. Yeah, I think he's I very, think... he's very. I remember him. Did he go to Derby in the end? Doesn't everybody? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I've I've got this image of Colin Hendry playing the same team as like Paolo Wanchop or something like that. Or, or am, I, am I misplaced him? He goes to Rangers, goes to Rangers in '98, and then comes back and goes to Coventry, Bolton, up and until that, 2003. And that'll be Bolton. the Sam Allardyce Bolton. So it'll be uh, probably likes of JJ Acotcher. I knew it was a team in white. So, yeah, he, he don't play an awful lot. But. but Walker gets ill, doesn't he? I mean, like, so not long after the title win, he's essentially laid up with, with cancer and he obviously passes away. Is it 2000s or something like that? Yeah, um, just after so, the renovation. Yeah, so uh, essentially in those last couple of years, like, he, he's obviously his mind's on other things, so... You know, he doesn't maybe you know, sort of take the direct uh, interest he did in those first sort of five or six years owning the club. Um, the whole thing just sort of strikes me as a man just wanting to give his club a moment. Like he threw everything into just giving them that chance, that, that shot to do it. And then once they'd done it, I don't think there was just that, that appetite for continued or sustain success because it, I, I imagine it takes a lot out of someone to keep doing it yeah. to keep throwing that sort of money and you know the, we're not talking about a, a, a footballing conglomerate like like the city group or manchester united plc the, the guy was basically propping up the club by himself and once you've won it once 
what what do you get by winning it again? Yeah, I mean, I think for somebody that's a fan of the club, like once is, is probably enough, isn't it? You know, you kind of you've done what you wanted. You reached, uh, you know, you reached the promised land. I think you see it in American sports much more, don't you? Where like the owner is 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 a big a big personality and is kind of known by people, and um, they actually come up and lift the trophy <laughs> with the team and stuff, right? So yeah, like. It, it can feel like the culmination of a, of, a, of a life's work. And I'm sure it did feel that way to Jack Walker. And um, he got to live a bit of a boyhood dream, you know, to own his to own his football club and to restore it to to its former glory. So I'm sure he felt that every penny was worth it. And when he died in 2000, the club was put in trust and then the, the Jack Walker Trust held, owned on the club until it was finally sold to the Venkies. So, yeah, the last 10 years have been what they've been. And um, hard to imagine that they're likely to have anything comparable with this few years in the mid-1990s there, where they really just tore up the script of what football was supposed to be in this country and um, didn't always win fans but uh, certainly made an impact right as Joe's already hinted at we are doing this as something of a two-parter because Blackburn when they pass away into uh, not irrelevance but down into kind of mid-table the team that's come up and take their place is the one that we're looking at next time they've been on a roll for a while and they're about to really push and go 12 points clear at the top of the Premier League before it all goes horribly wrong one of the most entertaining sides of that whole era so entertainer we call them the entertainers it's the 95 96 newcastle team and i think really there'll be a lot of talk about the whole spell of kevin keegan's first run at newcastle so yeah one not to miss come on back next time and join us for that until then take care see you soon